Our Lord, you are the Ancient of Days. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you for these, these assurances of who you are, that we can lean into you in all the messiness, all the challenges that we face in this broken world. And I pray that now as we open the scripture that you will give us insight into who you are and how you have worked in the past, and that that will give us assurance and confidence as we follow you in the present and into the future. So please guide us. I pray that your word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path now and in the coming days and weeks, months, years. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've been a pastor for 14 years, and I worked in college ministry for three years, and before that, and some between those times, I was a volunteer in ministry for six or seven years. And one of the things I've learned in all that experience in ministry is that there are things that are beautiful in ministry as well as things that are messy in ministry. Now, it was the beauty of ministry that made me fall in love with ministry, especially seeing God transform people's lives. Yet I've also learned that at the same time that there's beauty in ministry, there can be messy things as well. Conflict, tricky decisions, heartbreaking situations, and one of the things that happens is that many times the beauty and the mess are actually happening at the same time. Where over here, there's some very difficult, messy stuff. While over here at the exact same time, there's stuff that's exciting and beautiful. I and mean, if you're involved in church, and especially if you're active in ministering to others, you will experience that messy beauty of ministry. Now, the messiness can leave us disillusioned or just make us feel like we just want to be done. But this morning, I think it's going to be helpful for us to see that that messy beauty of ministry was present even back in the early church. I invite you to turn the Bible to the end of Acts chapter 15. If you're using a Bible from the pew, we're going to be starting on page 1114. Now, the last few weeks, we've been following two church leaders named Paul and Barnabas. We saw last week how they were involved in a very messy conflict with some Jewish Christians who were absolutely convinced that if you want to follow Jesus faithfully, you need to be circumcised if you're a man. Because back then, at least from the Jewish perspective, people who wanted to honor God had to be circumcised. Now there's a meeting of church leaders in Jerusalem, and they discerned that, that God's will was that to be acceptable to God, all you need to do is trust in Jesus. You don't need to follow a whole lot of Jewish rules, such as circumcision. So that was last week. Today we're going to see some things that happen after that. We're going to pick up in Acts 15, verse 36. I invite you to follow along. It says, After some days, Paul, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we see here that Paul and Barnabas were preparing to visit the churches they launched a couple years earlier. And in many ways, this is a great 
idea. But sometimes great ideas generate conflict. And for Paul and Barnabas, the sticking point is that Barnabas wanted to take with them a guy named Mark. Now, you may remember that Mark was a young man who accompanied them on their first missionary journey, but he abandoned them partway in. He just left. He went back home. Now, right now, Barnabas wants to give Mark another shot. Paul says, no way. We cannot trust him again. Now, it says that this caused a sharp disagreement. It was emotional. It was angry. And both sides dug in their heels so much on this topic that Paul and Barnabas divided from one another. They split up. It's kind of like a divorce. They've been together ministering as partners in ministry for many, many years. And now they're going their separate ways. And this demonstrates that wherever there are people, there will be messiness, even in church. I mean, the ideal is that Christians treat one another with humility and respect, and that when there are disagreements, that they work through them in a way that leads to reconciliation and unity. That is the ideal that God calls us to. But sometimes things get messy because people are messy. And if spiritual giants like Paul and Barnabas struggle at times, we shouldn't be surprised when we face challenges as well in our relationships with others. Now, for Paul, for Paul and Barnabas, I think their conflict really came down to personality differences. Barnabas was, was a guy who was very gracious and patient and always happy to give someone another chance. Paul, on the other hand, he was a very strong type A personality, very focused on effectiveness and not wanting anything to derail him from his mission. Now, years later, Paul reconciled with Mark and depended on Mark as a, as a partner in ministry. But for now, it's a messy split. Barnabas took Mark and they sailed off to Cyprus to build up the churches there. Paul went a different direction. He took a guy named Silas, who was a church leader in Jerusalem, and they went north and they headed toward Asia Minor, which now is known as Turkey. Let's pick up in Acts 16, verse 1. It says, Paul came also to Derbe in Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. So we see here that Paul recruited Timothy, who became Paul's most important co-worker for the next 15 years. If you read Paul's letters, he frequently refers to Timothy, and in fact lists Timothy as the co-author in many of his letters. Paul also wrote a couple of letters that are included in the New Testament. He wrote them directly to Timothy. And in Philippians 2.22, Paul wrote, You know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So they essentially had a father-son relationship. And I think that is just beautiful. 
Now Acts 16 shows how the relationship took off. Paul probably met Timothy a couple years earlier when he started the church in Lystra and in that area. But in the meantime, during those couple of intervening years, Timothy had grown. He'd really begun to shine as a young man of great character, as a man with a deep dependence on Jesus. And Paul's inspired by this. He wants to bring Timothy along with him as an apprentice and as a co-worker in ministry. Now, Timothy, at first, was not circumcised. And for Jewish people, circumcision was a huge deal. Luke records that, that Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek, and that was the reason why he wasn't circumcised. You think about how today parents sometimes have tension at how to raise their children. Same thing happened sometimes back then. Now, verse 3 says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, at first glance, Paul's decision to circumcise Timothy might be confusing because he had just been involved in a big battle that concluded in Jerusalem saying, you know, circumcision is not necessary. You don't have to be circumcised to please God or to have salvation. And Paul had fought hard for that decision. He had fought on the side of, you know, you don't have to be circumcised. So why now is he intentionally choosing to circumcise Timothy? Well, Paul's decision to circumcise Timothy was strategic. But it was also complex and even controversial. That's part of the messiness in this. Now, remember Paul's game plan when he entered a new city? We talked about it a few weeks ago. He started by sharing the gospel in Jewish synagogues. And Paul knew that if Timothy went with him into these synagogues uncircumcised, everyone focused on how wrong it was for Timothy to be there and for Paul to have Timothy come into the synagogues with him. They would get all riled up. They would be all focused on Tim, Timothy's status as being uncircumcised. It would distract people from the gospel. People wouldn't want to hear the gospel when an uncircumcised person is there in the synagogue with Paul. And so Paul sought to remove that distraction. Paul's mentality was, how can I build bridges to the gospel? He wanted to build bridges. If the gospel offended people, fine. But if he's doing something else that's offending people and distracting people from the gospel, you know, he wants to remove that distraction. Paul describes his tactics over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become, I have become all things to all people, that by all possible means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He's saying he wanted to remove any barrier he could possibly remove to help people come to faith in Christ. And this should give us some things to chew on when it comes to how we represent Jesus to those around us. Is there anything that we are doing 
in our lives, in our relationships, that, that are causing it to be hard for people to turn to Jesus, hard for people to accept the gospel? I mean, perhaps it's how we talk about politics, or maybe it's how we post things on social media, what we post there, or maybe it's how we treat people when we get upset, or any number of other things as well. We need to examine ourselves, examine our relationships to see, are we putting barriers in people's way to coming to faith in Christ? Barriers that could be removed. Barriers that are distracting people from the gospel. Now for Paul, his decision to circumcise Timothy, it was strategic, but it was also messy. And I'm referring to that in a metaphorical manner. Because if this happened today, podcasters and social media would just rip Paul apart. I mean, just label him as, as such a hypocrite. But Paul knew it's not a sin to be circumcised. Just like it's not a sin to not be circumcised. For Paul, this was a strategic ministry decision in order to help build bridges and open doors to the gospel. Now, I want to address a question that I'm sure that I would be asked after today's service if I don't address it. So I'm just going to address it. It's this. How do they know who, know who is circumcised? I mean, you're laughing. I have heard this question asked of me many, many, many times. Interestingly, I've never heard a scholar or a historian address this question. I did a quick Google search. Couldn't find anything even on Google about this. I mean, I'm sure there's stuff out there somewhere, but I've never heard anyone address it. So let me give you my best guess, because I'm sure someone's going to ask me. Let me just try to address it as best I can. I think that they would know back then if a man was circumcised using one of two senses, either seeing or hearing. On the seeing side, let me show you public toilets from back then. These are in ancient Philippi. When you have rows of toilets like this, and this is where a lot of people go to use the restroom, it's pretty natural you're going to see something there. And also people bathed in public baths, people bathed publicly as well in rivers. And so it's natural that, you know, people at times are going to see whether or not there's circumcision that, that took place. Now people also talked about circumcision. Well, one other thing I want to address in that picture. If you're wondering, that is me sitting there reading on the toilet. <laughs> Back when I was in seminary, I had the opportunity along with Shelley to receive a grant to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul through Bulgaria and Greece and Turkey. And so, so that was one of the places I learned about these public toilets. So that's kind of the seeing side, the hearing side of circumcision is that, that Jewish people especially talked about circumcision. I mean, it was a point of pride for Jews. I mean, I think about how in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul clearly and publicly declared that he was circumcised in just the right timing according to Judaism. And if someone entered the synagogue and there was uncertainty about whether that person was circumcised, I don't have much doubt that they would be asked, hey, are you circumcised? This would be a common topic of conversation back then. And I'm sure that the news would spread if someone who is Jewish was not circumcised. So there you go. I mean, they would either see it or hear about it. That's my best guess of how someone would know if, if other people are circumcised back then. But we see here that, that when Paul circumcised 
Timothy, the reaction of some may have been accusatory, but his motive in that was beautiful. He wanted to see more people come to Jesus. Let's move on now in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia in Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So one of the things I want to point out here is that discerning God's will can be tricky, but perseverance and flexibility pay off. Now you see Paul and his companions, they're going through what we know now as northern Turkey, and they're trying to share the gospel in some new places. But as they try to do that, the door in those places for sharing the gospel just keeps closing. Somehow they discern that it's actually God closing that door. And they end up in a city called Troas, and there Paul has this vision, kind of like a dream in the night, of a man in Macedonia who's saying, hey, come over here to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was a region that we know today as northern Greece and Bulgaria. And so Luke writes that they concluded that this was God's will. Now they did not hear a clear voice from God, just like we today rarely, if ever, hear a clear voice from God telling us what to do. But it says they concluded this is, this is what God was calling them to. He had closed other doors, other opportunities had, had, had come shut. I mean, it's kind of like for us. We have times where we think something's God's will. We begin to go there, but the door closes. The opportunity doesn't pan out. If that's happened to us, you know, we're in very good company because it happened to Paul too. But even though those other doors shut, now he has this dream in the night about Macedonia. And so they think, okay, hey, we think God wants us to go over there. So they go over to Macedonia. Let's pick up in verse 11. It says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. Now there's something significant in the pronouns there. It says, we sailed. Luke now, the author of Acts, has joined in with this missionary party, and he is now going where they are going. It says, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So it's time now to pull out a map so we can see where they're going, just to kind of get a geographical sense of what's going on. So this journey began a long way off the map over to the right. Now you notice down in the lower right corner of the map, you see Lystra. That is where Timothy is from. That's where he joined into the journey. And then they trekked through what we know as northern Turkey. That's where it seemed like doors were shutting for ministry. <clears throat> and then they came to Troas, and from Troas, they sailed across the Aegean Sea. They stopped for the night in Samothrace, a little island there. And then they went on and docked in Neapolis. And from Neapolis, they went nine miles overland to the city of Philippi. And this is the first time the gospel entered Europe. So this is monumental. Let's pick up in verse 12. 
Luke writes that we remained in Philippi some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who, were, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see here a woman named Lydia turned to Jesus. And this is a beautiful encounter. And it took place next to a small river just a little bit outside the city gates of Philippi. Now, it's possible there may have been a synagogue there, but probably not. In order for a synagogue to form in the city, there had to be at least 10 Jewish men gathered there in that city who lived there. But there were probably not enough to form a synagogue. So on this Sabbath morning, Paul goes outside the city gates to where he imagines that people are probably gathered for prayer, and he comes upon some women who are gathered there for prayer and worship. And he shares the gospel with them. And then Luke highlights one of those women in her story. Her name is Lydia. Lydia was a merchant who sold purple goods, mainly purple cloth. Now, purple dye was quite rare back then, so purple products were pricey. Now, Lydia was from Theatira, which was actually a place where they had a good source of purple dye, and she set up shop in Philippi, which was along one of the main roads in the Roman Empire. So she set up shop right there, and that, that road went right through Philippi, and she must have had a pretty successful business because Lydia appears to be quite wealthy. Now Lydia turned to Jesus and was baptized. Now it says that Lydia's household was baptized with her. Now, I think we need to be careful not to read too much into Lydia's household being baptized, particularly in terms of the idea of infants being baptized. For one, we don't even know how old Lydia was. We don't know exactly who was in Lydia's household. There's no biblical evidence of a person who didn't have faith in Christ ever being baptized. Now, house, households back then could be quite large, including extended family, including servants. Lydia was probably a widow, and she was definitely the leader of her household. And what happened here shows the influence of a household's leader on the people in that household, because Lydia influences everyone in that household to turn to Jesus. Now, Lydia then extended beautiful hospitality to Paul and his companions, saying, hey, come, Stay in my house. You're welcome here. She persuaded them to do so. And her house became the base of their ministry for the rest of their time in Philippi. Now I think about how sometimes women are ignored or neglected or downplayed in ministry. But Lydia had a very big role. Her house, in fact, became the place where the church in Philippi met for years thereafter. According to Paul's letter to the Philippian church that he wrote a decade later, that Philippian church supported his ministry financially in very big ways. And I can imagine Lydia being one of his biggest financial supporters in his ministry. 
I think about how this is just beautiful. Lydia is an example of Christian women who had a big impact, even in a culture that was quite patriarchal. Now let's skim through the rest of Acts 16. There's a lot going on there. I encourage you to read it on your own at some point this week, but I'm going to kind of summarize it and read key sections for us right now. Paul and his co-workers were very active in Philippi, sharing the gospel with people and meeting with those who had turned to Christ. And one day there were some people who got very upset with them. Verse 19 says, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Here's a picture of the marketplace. And from this picture you can see the walls uh, of some of the individual storefronts there in that marketplace. It's right in the heart of the city of Philippi. Verse 20 says, When they had brought them to the magistrates, right there in the heart of that city, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, Philippi had a whole lot of Roman patriotism, especially because a lot of retired Roman military officers retired to Philippi. So there's a lot of Roman patriotism there. There was a lot of anti-Semitism there, even though there were not a lot of Jews. It was a very anti-Jewish mentality there in that city. And so these people who are upset with Paul and Silas stir up the crowds by pointing at how these guys, they look Jewish, and they have a Jewish background. The crowds are all riled up. Verse 22 says the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think, wow. After such a warm welcome to Philippi by Lydia, now it's turned very ugly. And this just is indicative of how even when people are, are trying to faithfully minister for Jesus... It can get messy and ugly, even without any, any expectation, or it can be surprising. I mean, if you go to Philippi today, you would have the opportunity to see one of those inner prison cells, perhaps even the one where Paul and Silas were bound for that night in prison after being beaten. And I think about how it would be so uncomfortable in there, how, how they would be bleeding, how they may have had broken ribs at that point. It would hurt to lay down. It would hurt to sit up. I mean, everything after that beating they absorbed would hurt. But there was something beautiful happening in that prison that night. I think of Corey Tenboom, who endured Nazi concentration camps and suffered deep loss. How she said, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And that beauty of God and his love and his faithfulness is what Paul and Silas were focused on. Look at verse 25. It says, About midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So their voices, their hymns, their songs to God were echoing throughout the prison. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So God here, he orchestrated a miracle. Now something to know is that the jailer, the man who led that jail, lived right on the premises. His house was connected 
to the prison. And it says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to, about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. I mean, he knew that, that with those escaped prisoners, he would face a whole lot of public shame. And he knew that Roman custom was that if a guard um, was on, on duty, when prisoners escaped, that guard would likely be killed. And so this jailer is going to take things into his own hands. But, but then it says in verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. You know, perhaps he heard the singing echoing through the prison. And I am sure that he heard about their teaching out in the city before they were beaten and imprisoned. Verse 30 says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we see that God redeemed the pain of prison by turning the jailer and his family Jesus. And if Paul and Silas hadn't been imprisoned, the jailer may very well endure eternity in a much greater prison of hell. But instead, he and those around him are experiencing new life through Christ. And so, so I look at all that we've covered today and think, you know, this is such an epic story. And it's a true story of what happened in history. It's the origin story of the church. I mean, it's kind of like something you see in a movie. But it's real life. And the story is continuing down through the centuries. Even today, we can live into the story. We can be a part of what God is doing through the church that began 2,000 years ago and is continuing today. Now, as we're involved in church, we are likely to experience at times things that are difficult. I mean, if you're significantly involved in ministry, I am sure that you've experienced times of conflict or times of confusion or sadness. That's the messy side of ministry. It's really the messy side of life in this broken world. Yet, God is also at the same time doing something that is beautiful. I mean, I just think of the church that met in Lydia's house. You have Lydia, who is an immigrant from central Turkey, you have this man who led the city jail, an unlikely convert who had an amazing testimony. You also probably have this former slave girl who'd been a fortune teller. We didn't see her story today, but it's right there in Acts 16. We skipped over it. I encourage you to read it because she's actually the reason why Paul and Silas are in jail in the first place. But there's a decent chance that she is there as well and lots of unnamed men and women who are all gathered together worshiping Jesus. You know, church certainly can be messy, just like life can be messy. But also, because of God's work, it can also be so beautiful. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you give us the honor and privilege of knowing you through Jesus. 
and that you give us the opportunity to be gathered with a church family, with brothers and sisters in Christ, who we can be unified with in following you and in representing you to the world around us. Lord, we know that human families can be messy, and your family in this broken world at times is messy as well. Mission can be messy. There are a lot of things in this world that are confusing, they're tricky, that can even be painful metaphorically and literally. Yet, Lord, I pray that in the midst of messiness that you will remind us of the beauty of what you are doing and how we get the privilege of partnering with you in the work that you're doing of redeeming this world through Jesus. Lord, please give us wisdom and give us perseverance to follow you faithfully. For you are king above all else. You are one who rules above all else. And you are working all things for, for our good, ultimately, and for your glory. Lord, please help us to trust and follow you and have wisdom to represent you well by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name.